I wonder what uh, fantasy worlds you live in. And I don't mean to offend you with that question. But I think if we're honest, we all live in, to some degree, some fantasy worlds. We think we have more money than we do. We think we're stronger and more capable than we are. Perhaps you've seen the mean going around the leading cause for injury in old men is old men thinking they're not, they're still young men. We live as if we had control over our lives. We live as if our sin was not that bad, but the sins of others was so much greater. And we live as if death was not real. Of course, we know it is, but we functionally live much of the time as if it were not. And we push it out. And, and the main reason we do these things because, is because facing reality, facing life as it actually is, accepting ourselves as we actually are, not that young anymore, is frightening, is too much to handle sometimes, much of the time. It's overwhelming. We don't know how to handle reality. And so we would pretend much of the time to live in these fantasy worlds, these false realities. And part of what God is doing as he works in our lives, as he saves us through his son and, and continues to work in us through his word, is giving us the strength and ability to actually face reality. To come out of our fantasy worlds and face life. Not so that we can live depressed and apathetic and bitter lives because, well, reality stinks and that's the end of the matter. No, but so that we can actually learn, come to him and learn to live with strength and hope and even joy in the face of life as it actually is. God isn't, and church isn't, and Christianity isn't just one more in a long line of distractions and diversions from the world as it actually is. God is not just one more means of kind of momentary happiness that kind of keeps us going in this bitter and frustrating world. That's the best that our fantasy worlds can give us, right? Momentary happiness as we pretend that life is not actually as it is. We have to go on pretending that that is the case. But what God is up to is actually giving us something that, that endures and sustains through the ups and downs of life. It's not a false reality. He's giving us comfort and hope and peace and joy as we face life as it actually is. He's enabling us to accept things like death and sorrow and tears, to accept our frailty and our weakening bodies, our inability to control our lives and the world around us. And he's teaching us, again, not to just be apathetic about all this and bitter, but to have hope and joy that abides through all of this. The Bible calls this wisdom. And part of this wisdom is learning to live rightly and joyfully in this world as created by God, fully accepting our weaknesses and our sins and the seeming vanity and frustration of this life as we've been seeing in Ecclesiastes. So we've 
considered these things to some degree before, but today's passage really hammers into this. Um, and so we're going to take, we're going to go through verse 19 in chapter 7. We'll take it kind of three sections at a time. So start right at beginning, chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Uh, that is, the day of observing a death is better than the day of observing a birth, is what it's saying there. It goes on, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. What a great passage as we begin a new year, right? All the joy and laughter we've been having for the past couple weeks. You know what? Sadness is better. All right, what is going on here? It sounds utterly ridiculous, right? Well, it makes me think of, and, and I think it's helped, ex helped, it's explained in part by something that I've heard many pastors say. I've heard numerous pastors say, and I've never heard anyone say the opposite of this, that they would much rather do a funeral than a wedding. And the reason is because at a funeral and surrounding death, people are much more willing to face reality. They're much more prepared to reflect on life, to consider what is significant and true and meaningful about life, and to come out of their fantasy worlds. At, at a wedding, there are certainly awesome and joyful things about weddings, and there are aspects of weddings that point us to God and reality, of course. But it tends to be the case that in times of joy and celebration and frenzy, weddings and other celebrations and times of laughter, how easy it is for us to idolize that moment, to want to just stay in that moment forever, to think that, oh, finally, all is right with the world. And we just cling tightly to that feeling, to that moment, as if it were all of reality, and we begin to live in a fantasy world in a way that times of sorrow and death and memorial services don't really tempt us as much. You see this with Israel in the Old Testament, right? Whenever things were going well, they're like, whoa, look at, look at us. Look at how great and strong and in control and sufficient we are in and of ourselves. They get an outsized perspective on their own ability, and they start to sway from God. They don't think they need anything, need God anymore. They have it all in contr under control. And I suspect you've seen this in your own heart as well, when things go well. Despite this, despite this tendency, we still put all of our energy, we tend to put all of our energy and our priority into seeking times of pleasure and laughter, Right? We try not to have to face things like sorrow and death. We think we can laugh away the sorrows of life. We can 
drink away the sorrows of life, eat away the sorrows of life, party away the sorrows of life, numb and distract ourselves so that we don't have to face the sorrows of life. And so that's what you see going on in this first section here. Um, this house of feasting, song of fools, the laughter of fools. It's not that gladness and laughter and, and merriment and feasting are bad things in and of themselves, but when that's what we seek in life, when that's the totality of what we seek after, we are not being made very wise. It's a fantasy world. And what the author says here, what God says, is that the wise will lay to heart the reality of death. will take into consideration and reflect on the shortness and frailty of life, our weakness, our inability to control life. And the wise will learn from that rather than just ignoring it or trying to do an end around it. Um, the, the wise pray the prayer of Psalm 90.12, teach us to number our days, right? Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The wise are those who are learning to no longer freak out or not freak out as much or lose all bearings when sorrows and tears and frustration and death rear their head again. The wise are those who are learning to no longer turn to only laughter and, and distractions and feasting and drinking and all of this to ignore the difficulties of life. Um, I read this week that apparently some Catholic monks uh, centuries ago, they would read their Bibles by candlelight and they would have the candle stuck in the head of a skull. And uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, noted that he said, the light from a death's head may be an awful one, but it is, a, it is a very profitable one. This constant reminder of, of death. Now, that may be a bit morbid, especially on New Year's Day, and, but I wonder if that's partly just because of how unwilling we are to face things like sorrow and death. We try not to think about them at all costs. The author continues, verse 7, similar theme here. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Oh yeah, I put the wrong passage up there, didn't I? should be chapter 7. I'm reading the right one. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Verse 8 there stands out, the better is the end of a thing than its beginning. What a fitting passage for the beginning of a new year. We are all about new beginnings. New diets, new routines, new commitments. Our culture loves to make a big deal with hype and marketing of the beginning of a new season, TV show, sports season, new upgrade for your device or app, all of this newness. And part of the reason we love newness so much is that we are pretty impatient. We live in a culture of instant gratification and we don't have the patience to wait till the end of something and to, or even to wait a month and be like, oh, is this all that great actually? 
And so it's not merely being pessimistic here to say that the end of a thing is better than its beginning. There is much to be learned from the ends of things. Even though they tend to not be as exciting as the beginning of things. There is much to be learned from being patient in spirit, learning how to wait patiently and faithfully, knowing how to continue on when something comes to an end. And all our hopes turned out to not be as, as great as we expected them to be. The author continues, verse 10, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. So say you have an inheritance, have some wealth. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. So this is just another way of ignoring the sorrows and toil of life, right? Constantly living with an idealized notion of the past, of former days, and basing our hopes on getting back to them. So not only do we think that there was a time when all was right in the world, culturally, politically, whatever, things were more to our liking, that may have been true, but not only do we think that, we live in a constant pursuit of finding that again. Again, this is just another way of living in a fantasy world and not actually coping with life as it actually is, right here and right now. If, if Ecclesiastes is a book that comes at us and, and is the word of God for us, then it doesn't matter what decade you live in, or century, what state you live in, or country, there has always been toil and frustration and weariness wherever, whenever you lived. As the author said in chapter 1, what has been is what will be, and there's nothing new under the sun. And so our task is to learn how to live the life that is right here, right now before us. Not 10 years ago, not 50 years ago, not that life over there, this life? How do we live in the reality that actually is and not these false realities? Now, almost all of this so far could have been said by, by someone who didn't believe in God at all. You don't have to be a Christian, and you can be an atheist and recognize some benefit in accepting death and sorrow and trying to learn some lessons from them. You can see that there's wisdom in living with patience rather than pride and anger. You can make a rational argument for this without ever talking about God. But here's the thing. Such an approach to life, uh, attempting to live with this kind of wisdom of accepting life as it is, but without the reality of God, will ultimately lead you to be extremely apathetic and depressed and devoid of any joy. It would become crippling. Think about it. You would rightly acknowledge the reality of sorrow and death and that life may never get better. You would rightly acknowledge your own lack of control of life. 
And, and you would refuse to live in a false reality because that's not wise. So far, there's some wisdom in that. But here's the thing. Apart from God, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. You don't believe that there's any good purpose or providence behind any of this, that it's working for a good reason. It just is. And so you might have some wisdom. You might be thought more wise than, than some others, but you wouldn't have joy. You wouldn't have hope or purpose. And so if God is not a living and meaningful reality in our lives, we really have two options. We can be wise to a degree and accept life as it is, but really be unable to live with any joy or hope. Or we can just live in our fantasy worlds and have some kind of momentary happiness, momentary comfort, but be living a complete lie and continually having to pretend that life is different than it really is. And so in these, in these next few verses here, we see that there is a third option. These verses are kind of like the theological undergirding or the God-centered undergirding and root of the wisdom here in these verses. And they show us that there is a way to live openly in reality and have joy in all things. So starting at verse 13, we'll read through 19 here um, and then work through it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, we're going to come back, and we're going to reflect mainly on these two verses. Uh, but let me read through the rest of our passage, through chapter nine, or verse 19. Um, and I'll just say that these next few verses are, some of, are probably the most difficult to interpret in this book and some of the most difficult to interpret in the Bible. And I'll, I'll explain them a little bit, but verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And then one more verse. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Um, so briefly, uh, there are two difficulties with that passage, and you probably noticed them. First of all, what is verse 16 encouraging? Just to be a little wicked. Kind of seems like what it is. And then secondly, how do verses 16 and 17 relate to verse 18, this taking hold of this and a little bit of that? Are we to take hold a little bit of goodness, righteousness, wisdom, and a little bit of wickedness and foolishness? Kind of seems like what it's saying. Um, I see three options here, and I will just confess that I find none of them entirely convincing. Um, this is a truly difficult passage um, that I'm not entirely sure what it means, but I'll give you three options. Um, and uh, we're not going to, so because of its difficulty, we're not going to base the whole sermon off of these verses. Uh, we're going to take what is clear and base it off of that, and that is just a good policy in reading the Bible. There, are, there is much that is abundantly clear, and everything important for us in the Bible is very clear. 
So it's always good to start and base our understanding on that. Okay, option one, just give you three options real quick for what these verses mean. Option one, which I find the least persuasive, but I did see somebody at least um, take it, um, is that this is really encouraging and embracing of kind of a middle ground between righteousness and uh, wickedness. Balance in all things. Be a little righteous, be a little wicked. Um, I think we can reject this right off the bat in light of the rest of Scripture. I mean, this very book goes on to say that the end of all things, the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Um, surely in this wisdom literature, it's preposterous to think that, well, that there should be a warning not to pursue wisdom too, too hard. Option two, which is quite popular um, and I, I think has a good amount of merit, is that this is about pursuing these things, righteousness, wisdom, even wickedness and folly, as ends in themselves, right? Merely kind of an outward, um, self-righteous, pharisaical pursuit. We're trying to appear righteous, appear wise, um, trusting in our own righteousness or wisdom. So I think this is possible, but I struggle to fit that interpretation in with the verses before and after, with verses uh, 15 and 18. I'm not sure how that ties it together. What does it mean to take hold of a little bit of righteousness, self-righteousness, and a little bit of self-wickedness? But that's possible. Um, but option three I find to be the most plausible. And that is that the author is continuing with the logic in verse 15. So in verse 15, he said, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, this isn't fair. This isn't right. The righteous should not the righteous person have a long life, and the wicked man not. And so then, then he follows that train of thought as if it were the end of the matter. Right? If that's the case, if life is not fair to the righteous and the wicked, and there's nothing else to say, then the, perhaps the best option is, well, to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and hope things turn out well in the end. Because merely pursuing righteousness and merely pursuing wisdom don't necessarily make a happy life. Wisdom and righteousness don't always make our lives better. That's kind of one of the points of Ecclesiastes. There's now, there's more to the story, but that's one of the kind of sub-conclusions of Ecclesiastes. So logically within this section, I think that makes sense. Um, but as we've seen time and time again, all of Ecclesiastes needs to be read in light of the end. And every seeming conclusion that we come to is kind of like a, um, a not a final conclusion, a non-conclusive conclusion, if you will. And so I think these verses can be read as that, although they are a bit more resigned and pessimistic than most others. But even in verse 19, the author quick, quick, quickly snaps out of this because as you read on, the author encourages uh, wisdom and righteousness with not, without any mingling of foolishness and wickedness. And so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot as we've gone through Ecclesiastes is it's really tempting to think that the message of Ecclesiastes is, well, just lower your expectations. Just lower your expectations with life. It's not that great. 
But that's not the message. There's nothing here in this book or elsewhere in Scripture that leads us to believe that we're supposed to, that our longings, that our desires, our hopes are, are, are wrong or misplaced or in and of themselves are bad. As pessimistic as Ecclesiastes can seem, the conclusion is clearly not, we'll just give up all hope. Don't hope for much. No, the problem isn't our longings and desires and hopes and dreams. The problem is we can't find anything to satisfy them. That nothing that we turn to, even just wisdom in and of itself, even just trying to live a moral righteous life, satisfies all of this. So with that, let's return to verse 13 and 14 and flesh, flesh this out. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Uh, this is not, as it may seem, speaking of moral crookedness, but rather the fact that God directs all things. We cannot unbend or change what he ultimately decides to do. He is in control. We are not. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So God is sovereign over both um, prosperity, times of gladness, and adversity, times of sorrow. And yet we don't know when one or the other will come. We can't understand what will come after us even tomorrow. And all of this, as I saw one author put it, clips the wings of our self-sufficiency. Reading this about God and about ourselves clips the wings of our self-sufficiency. So the idea that we are flying around with this notion that we have some control, that our lives are within our hands, that we can get what we want out of life and we can avoid sorrow and death, and the truth comes along about ourselves and about God God's providence, and it clips those wings and we fall to the ground. And that is exactly what we need if we are to live with joy and satisfaction in this life. We have to consider the work of God. We have to come to this place where we consider God, not just ourselves. It is true that we can't control life, but that doesn't mean life is out of control. The future is in his hands. Our lives are in his hands. Even sorrow and toil and frustration and death are within the realm of his providence, and they are not chaotic, unhinged forces which God can do nothing about. No, he is working them all together for good. And when we learn to accept this, accept on the one hand our own frailty and dependence and limits, and then on the other hand we learn to trust God, we can be joyful in times of good and times of prosperity without idolizing them and without clinging to them as our only last hope in life and just trying to make them continue. We don't have to run around frantically and fearfully trying to cling to every last ounce of joy and not let it slip away, which really makes it hard to be joyful. And in this place, we can also accept adversity and sorrow, and even death with patience and endurance and faith rather than being devastated by it. We don't have to live in constant fear 
of days of sorrow and, and struggle because we know even these things are within God's sovereign hands and he will use them for good. In other words, we can rest and rejoice in all things. I mean, Scripture actually, God commands us to do this, which must mean it is possible. Like, we have what we need to rest and rejoice always. Uh, Derek Kidner, one commentator, he kind of sums this section up. He says, it's a little classic on the right approach to good times and bad, which you accept both from God for what they can give, not with the Stoics' impassiveness, just like, ah, whatever, whatever's going to be is going to be or with the restlessness of those who cannot bring themselves to accept a bonus with delight, like have no ability to rejoice in something good, or to receive a blow with an open and reflective mind. So as you consider your own life, do you see some learning of this ability to receive both good and bad to endure easy and hard seasons. Um, certainly none of us have this down. Certainly um, it's probably not our immediate response when things go bad. But are you learning this? Is your desire not simply to maximize times of pleasure and minimize times of sorrow, but to learn to rest and rejoice in God in all things? Because He is good, right? We must be convinced of that because he is good and loving. Do you know that God is not only sovereign, providentially ruling over all things, but that he is good in all he does? If we belong to him by faith in Jesus, we have his promise that he will work all things together for good. You can think about it like this. Christ was given up to suffer and die and experience sorrow and death in part so that all of our experience of sorrow and death would be temporary, would not be the final word, the final conclusion. Jesus was given up to suffer and die so that we could know and experience the love and goodness of Christ no matter what we go through. It's always ours. It's always present. Sorrow cannot separate us from God's love and goodness. It doesn't have the last word. It's temporary. Death cannot separate us from God's love and goodness. It doesn't have the last word. Realizing that life may not ever improve significantly, that doesn't have the last word. That's not the final conclusion. God's love and goodness keeps us and sustains us and gives us joy even then. Realizing that there's no returning to the golden days of before, This is the life God has given us. doesn't have to cripple us because Jesus has died and we have the love and goodness of God. So ultimately, it is because of who God is and what he's done for us that we can face reality head on, the highs and the lows. As we cling to him, come back to him again and again, we can continue steadfastly with hope, with comfort, with joy, and with with peace. Let's pray.